Presidential candidate Barack Obama promises a new governing majority that transcends red versus blue politics. But would or could conservatives buy into it? We'll ask conservative publisher Al Regnery, and a former contestant on Donald Trump's The Apprentice joins us to discuss the deficit of manhood in our culture. This is Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live... View for Christ and culture. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. She was disappointed. It was a little bit heated. She asked me why. I gave her the reasons, the race speech. I mentioned that there was something very special about Obama. Uh, Nothing against uh, her and her husband, who I'd served uh, for many years. New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, he was asked uh, what the phone call was like when he told Hillary Clinton that he had decided to endorse Barack Obama from the, uh, for the Democratic presidential nomination. He says he's had better conversations. In fact, the New York uh, Times uh, talks about this announcement. He actually made the announcement on Friday, talked to Senator Clinton Thursday night. Uh, New York Times says this decision by Mr. Richardson, who ended his own presidential campaign on January 10th, Uh, to support Mr. Obama was a belt of bad news for Mrs. Clinton. It was a stinging rejection of her candidacy by a man who had served in two senior positions, remember that, in President Bill Clinton's administration. Of course, uh, Governor Richardson of New Mexico is one of the most prominent uh, elected Hispanics in the nation. And uh, he came back from vacation to announce this endorsement. It was really a moment when Mrs. Clinton's hopes of winning uh, the Democratic nomination seem to be dimming. And uh, I'm just going to open up the phones right now, 800-881-9270, to ask you if you think uh, that Bill Richardson owed his support to Hillary Clinton. After all, he did serve in her husband's administration, and uh, it's pretty troublesome for Mrs. Clinton. Mr. Richardson said in announcing this decision, he really criticized the tenor of Mrs. Clinton's campaign. And this is from CBS's The Early Show. Again, uh, Bill Richardson talking about this announcement. I think it's about the country, and I think Barack Obama uh, is somebody that can bring the country together, a new generation of leadership. All right, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the program, because since the 2006 election, 
some uh, pundits and some columnists have actually pronounced the conservative movement dead, or at least on life support. So the question we are going to ask our guest uh, later in the second segment is, could a movement with such a strong foundation disintegrate after just one election? We will be talking with a very important figure in that movement. He is Alfred Regnery, publisher of the periodical that thrived on holding Bill Clinton accountable, the American Spectator. For years, he was president of Regnery Publishing, which put out some great, great books by conservatives. So he will join us to talk about this uh, Richardson endorsement and about the conservative movement as a whole. But right now, we want to know from you, uh, should a uh, Democrat governor, Bill Richardson, who served uh, at the pleasure of Bill Clinton twice in two positions, did he owe Hillary Clinton his uh, endorsement. And also, uh, just uh, since it's in the news all the time, uh, let's also talk about Barack Obama and his speech last week, his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, and whether or not you think that whole flap is going to hurt the Obama chances for the nomination. It's really a horse race now on the Democrat side, and uh, we are seeing from some polls lately that John McCain is actually benefiting from that. We also have a very interesting topic later in the program, and uh, let's listen to just a little soundbite uh, from a young man who actually had some success on television. He was a, conces- a contestant on the reality show The Apprentice, and he explains how he had his own gut check during his years in college, uh, which helped to inspire his new book, Gut Check, Confronting Love, Work, and Manhood in Your 20s. His name is Tarek Saab. You know, I was living this this life of, of just, you know, what, what I look back at as being kind of a debaucherous life. You know, I wasn't sleeping around with women uh, every night, but, you know, I was getting drunk and swearing and, and you know, talking about girls in, in pretty bad ways and, and things. Um, and yet at the same time, I looked at myself as being different than my friends. Like, oh, you know, my friends, they're not religious. They don't go to church. They don't, you know, they don't believe what I believe. But in my actions, I wasn't. In, in any way living out my faith and, and certainly not in, in uh, what I was vocalizing. So, um, you know, there's, there's this real dichotomy between the man that I was and the man that I thought I was. That's uh, Tarek Saab, and later in the program he will be joining us. He laments the state of manhood right now. He's a young man himself. Uh, of course, a lot of people think he nailed masculinity when he appeared on The Apprentice, but he says that young men need to put down video games, stop partying, and get married. What do you think of that? He'll join us later to talk about his new uh, book. But first, uh, let's go back to the phones, because we've got folks calling in to talk about uh, this endorsement of uh, Barack Obama by former presidential candidate Bill Richardson. First of all, let's go to Bob in Terrell. Hi, Bob. Thanks for calling. Hey, Penna. Uh, Bill Richardson really didn't know uh, Hillary anything. Uh, he's got his uh, freedom to choose the candidate he wants to, but I think uh, he sh- really should not be saying that that Barack Obama is the uh, right person to choose because with his uh, beliefs that his church has, it's really kind of scary. And also with his speech about race uh, and everything, I'd like to for him to describe what a typical right person is. What a typical white person is? Yeah, because uh, he said a speech about his uh, uh, about his uh, grandmother being uh, scared of a uh, typical white person. I mean, being a uh, being a typical white person was scared of a uh, 
of the uh, black people and that kind of stuff. That would be an interesting question to ask him. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate your call, and uh, we'd love to hear from you whether or not you think that uh, Bill Richardson owed his endorsement to Hillary Clinton. He endorsed Barack Obama. Also, how's Barack Obama doing in your mind in the aftermath of the speech? I mean, I read yesterday Peggy Noonan, who is one of my favorite columnists in the Wall Street Journal, she thought he did a good job with the speech, but she also thinks that what's happened and uh, there's really no way for Barack Obama to now get out of the uh, fact that this uh, candidacy is about race and the American people have learned something about what is preached in some black churches, not all, as we know. We have many friends with wonderful black churches, but uh, we've heard from a few other pastors across the country who agree with Jeremiah Wright, and this certainly does play into the presidential race. Uh, Does it Help the Democrats, hurt the Democrats. We'd love to hear from you. The number 800-881-9270. Of course, this story today that Bill Richardson, governor of New Mexico, Democrat, he was a presidential candidate, went ahead and endorsed uh, Barack Obama. Now, Chris Wallace from Fox News is reacting uh, to a comment made by James Carville, who is, of course, a uh, Clinton advisor, Now, James Carville likened Richardson to Judas for backing Barack Obama. Here's Chris Wallace on that. Mr. Richardson's endorsement came right around the anniversary of the day when Judas sold out for 30 (laughs) pieces of silver. So I think the timing is appropriate. So he called him Judas. And, of course, it's right around uh, in the days leading up to Easter And so it was an appropriate time to be able to uh, put that label on Bill Richardson. Let's go now to North Richland Hills to get another comment on this development. Jay is there. Jay, thanks for calling. Yes. uh, When I heard this, I was thinking, well, here's another politician. He, uh, you know, he served with Bill Clinton, and I think you saw the handwriting on the wall that possibly Barack Obama is probably the front runner. And with being a politician, I feel like he's saying, well, if I need to support him because if I want something and I support Hillary and he gets elected, then I'll be uh, I'll be set back, I guess. To me, it's a political thing. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with belief. Of course, there's not a whole lot within the Democratic Party. It has to do with belief. It has to do with uh, one of the power. So you and think Bill Richardson is hedging his bets? I think he's hedging his bets. Hillary Clinton seems to do better with Hispanics, so uh, this may change the calculus a little bit, although I don't think that uh, big-name endorsements do that much to sway people. And I do think that if Hillary Clinton gets the nomination, we can ask uh, Al Regnery later in the program because he's a big Clinton watcher, but if Hillary happens to get the nomination, uh, it may not be too good for uh, Bill Richardson because they they tend to... uh, well, there tends to be a little revenge sometimes with the Clintons. I don't know whether Barack Obama would uh, exact revenge. But let's go now to Rob in Dallas. Rob, thanks for calling in. What do you think? Well, what I think what makes it interesting with Barack Obama is by being in the situation he is as a man that came from a black and white family, one side cannot criticize the other without either hurting or complimenting him, depending upon what is said. So he relates to both sides what was predominantly being black and white. And I think with that being the case, he is pretty much an ideal candidate. 
And Do you think there's a sense in which, though, uh, throughout uh, what's happened with his pastor, and even uh, by his own efforts in trying to identify with blacks, that he has actually become the black candidate, even though he didn't plan on being that? Okay, say that again, ma'am. Do you think that Barack Obama has actually become the black candidate, even though that wasn't his plan in the beginning? No, I think what Barack has become is a candidate, because once again, for us to say, well, he is a black candidate, to me would be an insult to the white side of his family, or to say that he is a white candidate, which he's half white, would be an insult to the black side of his ancestry. So I think it's just the media that's bringing out the race into this mixture, because that's one thing that's always a sensitive, you know, a sensitive area. I do think he wanted to transcend race. I think you're correct about that. Yeah, and and, and, the, and the most beautiful thing about it, which I'm pretty sure a lot of users... Are you an Obama maybe, supporter? Excuse me? Are you an Obama supporter? Yeah, I'm a, I am a Obama supporter. Uh, I would have to say that because, you know, once again, with him saying change, we have to realize that in the White House you have a lot of sterility. You know, you have predominantly the best educated men and women in this country that probably came more than likely from very rich families that were able to get into the schools that your common child cannot get into because the cost... Okay, so it's uh, it's really sick it to the rich. I know that's his message, and uh, that's the change right. that we'll probably get. Let's go very quickly to the phones uh, and speak with Bruce in Dallas. Bruce, what's your comment? Well, I'm mostly concerned about uh, the comments of the Barack Obama uh, pastor, and I think it was Brock himself that said that a lot of the black pastors preach this same type of message throughout the country. And to me, that seems like that's very racist and keeps the segregation stirred up, especially in the South, if the leaders of the community, which is a lot of, and a lot of times is the black pastor, if they are preaching this type of message. And do you think that this is rampant in black churches across the country? I've heard a couple of high-profile pastors who have been quoted today and over the weekend saying that this is the type of message they resonate with Jeremiah Wright. Floyd Flake in New York being one of them, who seems to be a very reasonable guy, served in Congress. But uh, in a sense, I agree uh, with you, Bruce, to say that uh, this has sort of stirred up racism in the country. It was something that Barack Obama didn't intend to do. It's happened. And I guess the question is, does this help solidify blacks behind Barack Obama, or does it hurt and turn off many uh, folks who would have been uh, his supporters? It's a question we'll have to continue to discuss here on Jerry Johnson Live. And I may ask our next guest... He knows a lot about politics. He's Al Regnery. He led Regnery Publishing Company, taking over from his father. And, of course, now he's publisher of The American Spectator. He'll join us next to talk about his new book, Upstream. So stay with us. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. 
Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Barack Obama will be a great and historic president who can bring us the change we so desperately need by bringing us together as a nation here at home and with our allies abroad. Well, that's New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson at a campaign uh, rally. He says it's time for Obama. And uh, he was also asked uh, if he saw Hillary Clinton taking part in crucial issues uh, while her husband was president, he was uh, in the Clinton administration. He got a chance to look at that. Here's what he said. Yeah, I did. And she was very influential. It was obvious in the White House. But, you know, I think what Obama brings is sound judgment, an internationalist background when it comes to national security issues. Well, uh, we've got a great guest to uh, answer some of these questions that uh, Bill Richardson has been asked, and he is Alfred Regnery. He's the former president and publisher of Regnery Publishing. I've read so many books uh, coming out of Regnery Publishing. Uh, Under his administration there, 22 New York Times bestsellers were actually uh, published. He is now the publisher of The American Spectator, which is a magazine that uh, absolutely loved to reveal lots of juicy details about uh, Bill Clinton when he was in office. And, Al, thank you so much for joining me. Well, pleased to be with you. Thank you. Al Regnery has a new book out called Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. And, Al, first I want to ask you the question that Bill Richardson was asked, because Hillary Clinton does talk a lot about her experience. Uh, she was a different kind of first lady, I guess. Uh, do you think that uh, that's, a, uh, I guess, a, um, a valid argument for her to say she's got experience because she was first lady? Well, this experience is beginning to come apart at the seams. Um, this business with Bosnia today, you may have seen in the paper where she had claimed that she had helped settle um, things in Bosnia, and she would talked about going there with, um, with, uh, under fire and so on. In fact, it was completely untrue. Um, as, as they've looked at her schedule that was released last week, they realized that this much of this experience is a figment of her imagination. Well, most of her experience was just First Lady protocol, wasn't it? Well, most of it was, yeah. Out of 70, some 70 foreign trips, 65 of them were just going and doing teas and, and things that First Ladies do. And um, as she talks about her 35 years of experience, which would include her time at the Rose Law Firm, that famous place that she worked in Little Rock when she was on the... Um, doing various things for her husband while he was governor and making money and doing the cattle futures. Remember, she made turned mm-hmm. $10,000 into 100 and all that sort of thing. So, um, again, I think this experience is largely just an imaginary one. All right, let's talk about the other Democrat for a moment. Uh, Al Regnery is with me. And, you know, Barack Obama says that he's going to transcend uh, politics. Uh, well, he's not... lots of people have talked about <laughs> that over the years. This book I just wrote, I sort of chronicle the last 50 years of conservatives and liberals, and it's amazing how many 
Times, somebody running for president has promised things that he had no no no, no intention of doing and no way of doing. I mean, the idea that he's going to bring us all together, if you saw the Reverend Wright um, screaming and yelling about goddamn America last week, I don't think that's the kind of thing that's going to bring us together very fast. Well, that's why I'm glad you wrote the book, uh, because Al Regner is with me. His book is Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. And I find it interesting to hear a candidate. Uh, of course, he's now got to articulate issues a little more than he's done, and he's going to have to, especially if he's the nominee. But to say he can be sort of a new kind of uniter-type person and that he can bridge this red-blue divide, well, what's going to happen to the conservatives in that mix? I mean, they're not going to like that, are they? No, and he's not going to be able to do that anyway. I'm, um Obama doesn't have any history whatsoever of bringing people together. He's never really tried. I think somebody just came up with it as a good campaign theme. Um, conservatives would be completely opposed to him. Um, were he elected, and let's all hope he isn't, but if he were elected, I think that um, he would face enormous opposition from every quarter, um, both in the Congress and among the populace while he was trying. I mean, look at his program, the things he says he's really going to do. It's just more left-wing liberalism. I mean, it's more big government programs. It's more intrusiveness by the government. More, um, more of the same thing that was, has been going on in the Democratic Party since Franklin Roosevelt. And um, there, there's very little chance of him is actually being able to do th- those things. And if he were, it would be more divisive than ever. All right, Al, uh, this is a fascinating book. Uh, it's entitled Upstream, and I, f- I find it uh, interesting that anyone would say, first of all, just from one election, the 2006 election, where it was pretty devastating for Republicans, but just to look at one election and say the conservative movement is dead or at least on life support, I mean, this is a movement that's been building for 50 years. It has been, and you know, the conservative movement is based not on winning political winning elections. Obviously, that's part of it. It's the ideas. It's what we stand for. It's, it's the foundation. It's, it's limited government and traditional values and a strong foreign policy that's in the interest of the United States and those kinds of things. And that's, that's what the conservative movement is all about. It's ideas and it's principles. And um, those don't change. I mean, ideas are the thing that really make the world go around and politics follow them. And so, sure, there are ups and downs in politics. Um, there are elections that are won and lost for all kinds of reasons, and you win, you, you lose an election. I mean, it doesn't make all that much difference in the long scheme of things, you know. All right, I've got to go to a group uh, in a couple of weeks, and it's a Republican group, and, and give them some encouragement. They're mostly real conservative people to say, okay, um, give us something positive right now. We're a little bit down and dejected. What would you say to a group like that? I would say, first of all, we're in this for the long term. This is not a one-election kind of a thing. It's not a one-year thing. This has been building. Actually, it's been going on for a lot longer than 50 years. I mean, I like to think that the conservative movement started in 1789 with the ratification of the Constitution. And um, so we are, we're interested in, in preserving Western civilization and pre- preserving American values and those kinds of things. And that's a long-term undertaking. And um, you look back over the last 50 years, we've lost an awful lot of elections, and we've lost in a lot of other things, but we eventually prevailed. And I guess it's a little bit like fighting evil. I mean, if you're fighting evil and you lose once, what do you say? You're going to give up? No, I don't think so. You're going to come back and fight again and again and again. You watched the Clinton administration, Al, and would you say in a sense uh, that that administration was good for the conservative movement? Well, in a way it was. Um, it, the conservative movement gained an enormous number of people, um, formulated a lot of issues, realized how to fight against 
something. I mean, there were a lot of things that were perfected during that time that that will last for a long time. As we brought in a lot of people that had never been involved in politics before that were horrified at what was going on. And so from that standpoint, it was good. And actually, in some things, the Clinton administration wasn't all that bad. I mean, in economics, for example, the, the economy did relatively well, um, basically because Bill Clinton kept his hands off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, there, there are a few things you can point to. But overall, I mean, the, 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 the moral issues and the example that he set for the country were just horrible. Um, but, that, yeah, I would say in, in some, the conservative movement probably was stronger at the end of the Clinton administration than it was at the beginning. Uh, one of the things that the American Spectator did was bring to light a lot of the shenanigans and the activities of Bill Clinton. And, of course, uh, that was taken advantage of, in a sense, by his opponents, uh, hopefully to get him uh, impeached and even removed from office. And, of course, that wasn't ultimately successful. Do you think that was a good strategy in retrospect? Oh, I guess you could debate that all day long. Um, if it happened again, I think we would do exactly the same thing. I mean, it's awfully hard to, to look at those things when you're in the middle of them to try to figure out what the if the strategy is good or not. Um, it, I think that it, it certainly told the country that a president can't do these kinds of things and let them go unnoticed. Um, I mean, what, what Bill Clinton was doing, we all know, um, the kind of immorality that was being practiced and the example that he was setting is simply behavior that is completely unbecoming of President of the United States. And I think it's it's incumbent on somebody in the in the American population to call him on that. So that certainly happened. Now obviously he was impeached and he wasn't he wasn't convicted, but um that's obviously political rather than on substance. Um, I think he probably should have been, but um you never really know that until you get into it. I mean we haven't had a lot of impeachments we can look back on before. Um, unlike some other things. There's a lot in your book about Ronald Reagan, and of course uh, we look back to uh, Ronald Reagan with some nostalgia. We see him as sort of a standard bearer for the conservative movement. Uh, And I know we're not going to find another Reagan, uh, but can we sort of help John McCain to get like maybe halfway there? Well, I think John McCain has a lot of good tendencies. What conservatives need to do if McCain gets elected is to hold his feet to the fire. And actually, you know, conservatives did that with Ronald Reagan. People forget that there were things that Reagan did conservatives didn't like, and they let him know it. And he he heard them, and um, he was very much aware of it. They've done that with George Bush. I, I end the book um, talking about the Robertson Alito nominations. I say those would not have happened if it hadn't been for conservatives getting together, working together, raising money, involving 80 or 90 different conservative organizations and working just to the bone to get that done. And that kind of thing is what we need to do with John McCain, is to put pressure on him to make the phone calls and the letters and the emails and all those things to the White House and and just never let up. And the president is aware of those things because, for one thing, he wants to get reelected, and he knows where, if he knows where the, the votes are coming from, um, he will respond. Al Regnery, uh, thank you for this great book. I encourage everyone to get this because uh, what we uh, learn from history will help us moving forward. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from the history of the conservative movement. So I appreciate you joining me today and also this great book. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And that's Al Regnery. He is the author of Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. Uh, There's just so much great information in here, uh, how the conservative movement grew and built. And uh, I do think that there are a lot of uh, teachable moments in here for the conservative movement as it moves forward. And as Al Regnery says, that movement is not dead. 
Uh, it's still strong. You get political setbacks, uh, but you don't die just because of one election. Well, next up, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Is there a crisis of manhood in America? And if so, what caused it and what can be done about it? Our next guest is known to fans of Donald Trump's The Apprentice. Uh, he is Tarek Saab, and he has a message about manhood. It's not what's coming out of Hollywood. We'll interview him next on Jerry Johnson Live. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Well, here's what our next guest says. He says it was once taboo to live with your parents after graduation, not anymore. Today's college grads party on the weekends, are addicted to video games, and depend on mom and dad into their thirties. That is uh, some of our college grads. Not all, because I know quite a few who are uh, on their way to adulthood. But there is a crisis uh, in manhood, some young men not growing up. Uh, and uh, our next guest has got a book about it. His name is Tarek Saab, and uh, his claim to fame is being a very successful uh, person to appear on The Apprentice with Donald Trump. Some of you may be fans. Uh, his name, again, Tarek Saab, and he's got a new book out, Gut Check, Confronting Love, Work, and Manhood in Your 20s. I think it's a needed book. And uh, Tarek, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. All right. Tarek Saab is the son of working-class Lebanese immigrants. And uh, I guess because of your success on The Apprentice, you've sort of become a poster boy for manhood. First, tell us about that appearance. Well, it was a fluke, really. I was actually working at uh, Texas Instruments for about five years, and the uh, producers for The Apprentice came to the worldwide headquarters and held an open casting call. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I ever had any real desire to uh, to go on the show prior to that opportunity. Um, but, you know, one thing led to another, and, and a few months later I found myself on national TV. All right. Did you get fired? I, did, I haven't. I, I don't watch the show. Yeah, I did get fired, but I made it pretty far. I lasted about ten weeks into the process. I... Uh, it was also called back for the final couple of weeks. So uh, all in all, it was a real positive experience. All right. Was that show part of your motivation in writing this book? You know, not really. I had gone through a, a real period of spiritual disillusionment in my mid-20s. You know, I had grown up in kind of a poor, lower-income household, and my dream growing up was to make uh, $60,000 a year and have a nice car and a nice house and such. And by age 24, I had all those things. I was making $135,000 a year working in Silicon Valley, uh, had nice clothes, nice car, traveled everywhere, and I was just unfulfilled. And uh, it was really that search for happiness, that, that struggle to find purpose, um, which I think really infects a lot of uh, people my age that leave college, and it's known today as the quarter-life crisis trying to discern what it is that, that we're here for. And, uh, and so I'd always had this idea that I would love to write a book for the man that I was five years ago, uh, but The Apprentice was certainly the platform that, that made it possible for me. All right, uh, Tarek, you say that men don't know when to put down the video game, stop partying, and get married. So you're really, this is an indictment on young men, but it affects young women, too, because if young men don't get serious and get married and settle down, then there are a lot of young ladies uh, floating around uh, there. But just tell us about the problem and why you make that assessment. 
Well, I make that assessment primarily because it's something that I've struggled with. You know, this book is a memoir about my life and, and my challenges of being a, a man in the modern world. And, you know, certainly technology plays a big part, uh, whether that's the Internet or television or cell phones or email or video games or sports, politics, what have you. And, you know, we're just a country of addicts. And our addictions may not be as extreme as being a, a, a drug or alcohol addict necessarily, but sometimes they're, they're addictions to the simple pleasures that we may take for granted. And, you know, the real distinction is that, you know, the difference between a child and an adult is that a child is needy. A, a child is very egotistical. A toddler needs things. They want to sleep. They want to eat. They cry unless they get what they want. Whereas an adult is sacrificial. And making that transition in today's modern world is, uh, is a real gray area. People don't know when that necessarily happens. And so, um, you end up with this prolonged childhood, this Peter Pan complex of a uh, group of adults that just really never want to grow up. Do you think that the parents are partially at fault in allowing young men to kind of uh, prolong that childhood, I don't know, in some way uh, pampering or baby- babying them? Absolutely. I mean, it starts at home. It starts with the family, uh, the values that you raise, um, you know, within within the, uh, the home structure. And, um, you know, I think adults, parents are equally as addicted to, to their own attachments. And so, you know, it really starts with them setting the example. Uh, fundamentally, we have to recognize that success in, in all facets of life, success in life and in business, begins by focusing on death. We have to start with the final outcome because there's no, uh, there's no question that forms a person's identity more than their answer to the question of what happens after we die. So that's, that's the gut check. That's the gut check, and that's, that's a question that gets answered at home. That's where it starts, and that is a question that I think is, is largely cast aside in our modern culture because we, we just focus on our pleasures, we focus on the future, but we never focus on uh, the tomb. And, uh, you know, that's the, the real, uh, I think, the epiphany that happens for a lot of people. It just happens at, at different stages in one's life. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like you to join this conversation with uh, Tariq Saab. And is there a crisis in manhood? And do you have a personal story about that, either yourself, someone you know, or maybe one of your children not growing up, uh, not taking responsibility, maybe too much video games, too much partying? Uh, give us a call, 800-881-9270. And Tarek, one thing I have noticed among young people is that they really don't get married young uh, anymore. I mean, in some circles, they still do. But in many cases, they don't even think about marriage until they're in their 30s. What about that? Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think the reason stems from you find so many people that are looking for uh, just pure bliss in the marital relationship every single day. And so there's a fear that, you know, the person that I marry is not going to make me happy for the rest of my life. You know, there's this, like, deification of love in our modern world. People need to recognize that in our relationships, we have to look at the people in, in our lives, whether that's husbands or wives or girlfriends or, or even mothers and fathers. You know, we're in their lives to help them get to heaven. And, you know, if we're not doing that, then, then we're missing the whole point. And so people really um, are, are very scared. They're tepid. They don't want to, um, you know, to take, take that leap and, and take on that responsibility. So is there a sense in which people need to figure out what God's plan for them is rather than uh, trying to, I guess, satisfy their uh, desires for happiness? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, we, um, you know, we're never going to be fully happy on earth. There is no saturation point. There is no 
billionaire that I'm aware of that has stopped working, right? Once you have a billion dollars, you either want, you know, fame or once you have money. Or another billion. Pardon? Or another billion. Or another billion. Exactly. There's, there's no point at which you can say, well, now I am just fully happy. There's always something else. It's, uh, it's the black hole complex. You know, there's, there's no material possession that's big enough to fill up a black hole. The only thing that you can use to fill up the black hole is, is uh, infinite. You know, it's God. It's our relationship with God. And, and um, that's a difficult concept for a lot of young people today to understand. And, you know, believe me, I, I went through it. You know, I had my questions about God as well. And once you can embrace that, uh, it, it really frees you to, uh, you know, explore levels of, of, you know, your personality and, and levels of happiness that before you were closed off to. Okay, I'm going to ask you to give your testimony of how you came to the Lord in a moment, but first we've got some folks calling in. My guest is Tarek Saab, and his book is Gut Check, Confronting Love, Work, and Manhood in Your 20s. So we're talking about manhood. The number is 800-881-9270. And I might mention that Tarek lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I guess you used to work with uh, Texas Instruments. Uh, but would you mind uh, sticking with me over the break? Because I think well, we're getting quite a few calls coming in. I'd love to. All right. Uh, let's take the first call here from John in Dallas. John, thanks for calling. How are you all today? Great. Um, well, I actually have a interesting perspective on this. I both have gone through a personal period of my life where I was not a good example to my family because of the exact things that you're discussing. Um, and then I now actually work in that industry. I run an animation company. And um, I think my industry is a very valid industry, but at the same time, I see the problems that arise from... So you're talking video industry. games and spending too much time uh, with technology? Oh, right, right. I uh, That's the type of technology and art and things that uh, we work in in our company and before I got in the actual industry when I was in college I uh, had lost a previous business and kind of was listless there for about four years in college and just totally I'm interested though if you feel like if you feel like I'm interested though uh, if you feel like it was a problem for you then uh, what's the positive road that you took with your company well we went into a different, a completely different direction with our art and with our technology. Um, we have been doing things such as uh, doctor surgeries and crime scene recreation and um, things that okay. I consider to be a positive influence and impact on our culture and civilization. Okay, Tarek, I just want you to comment on video games because we haven't really uh, unpacked that part of it yet. But this tends to be sort of, uh, I won't say an addiction, but certainly a time killer, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you know, I think the, the caller raises a great point because there are ethical challenges, it seems, in, in today's society and almost any industry that you're involved in, uh, particularly when, you know, in, in the industry that I'm in now, I, I do some work in clothing and you're always dealing with the ethical challenges of sourcing out of China and, and countries where freedom of religion is oppressed and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a, a real challenge, so I applaud the caller for, for looking at it in that way. Now, when it comes to video games, you know, the, the thing that we need to, to recognize is that even in our re- recreation, whatever we choose for recreation, whether that's sports, television, video games, what, what have you, um, we have to prioritize it appropriately. 
And, you know, I often talk to people who say, well, you know, I only watch one hour of TV a night, or I only watch, or I only play video games for one hour per night. Well, if you're doing that, that's seven hours a week that you're devoting to this particular recreation. We have to ask ourselves, are we spending that same amount of time in prayer or reading or uh, edifying ourselves in some other way? And the answer oftentimes is not. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us spend a lot more time than that in front of the television or playing video games or in front of the Internet. And we just need to prioritize our lives and focus on the things that are, are most important. And, you know, we're, we're called here to love and serve God with all of our heart and souls and our neighbor as ourselves. And if we're spending 20 hours a week playing video games, we're certainly not doing that. We're not, we're not um, using the gifts that we've been given. All right, Tarek Saab is my guest. We'll continue on this discussion, the crisis of manhood. We've got callers waiting on the line. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. And my guest is Tarek Saab, and he's got a book about the crisis of manhood. This is very interesting. We've been talking about spending your time on things uh, like, for instance, video games. And it reminds me of a verse. This is really talking about uh, food sacrificed to idols and whether you should eat it. But it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. And uh, in verse 23, it says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. And so that's a principle that can be used in the way we spend our time on things that are maybe fun and exciting, but not profitable for our lives. And uh, Tarek, uh, you know, I guess I need to ask you to speak to that because young men love excitement and there's a need for that in their lives. So, you know, how do you find that balance? Well, again, I think it just comes down to, uh, you know, to prioritizing. And, you know, the, the challenge is, and, and I, uh, I love the, the, the passage in the Bible in Matthew eleven twelve, where he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and it's the violent who bear it away. You know, and you, you ask yourself, gosh, well, you know, I, I thought as a Christian I'm not supposed to be violent. What is, what is this passage all about? Well, you know, what they're saying there is that, we have to do violence against our own perversity. We have to do violence against our attachments, the things that lead us away from the Lord. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely necessary to have healthy recreation and to decompress because, you know, it, it, through the, the process of decompressing, you know, it kind, of, um, it, it kind of balances us out so that we can spend time uh, spiritually and in prayer life and such. But, um, you know, if, if we're unable to do that, then 
you know, we really find ourselves being led not by God, but, but by the other guy. And, uh, and that's the thing that men need to look at is that in this battle, in this struggle, they have to view it as spiritual warfare because that's what we're under right now. I mean, I can't drive down in, in Dallas or through Irving or anywhere without seeing billboards, you know, displaying nude women right. all the time and in the strip clubs everywhere. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge for me. I'm a happy, happily married man. I have a baby on the way, but Congratulations. I'm, I'm not... Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm not totally immune to those images, so I really have to, um, you know, to guard myself and prepare myself, and that comes through this form of spiritual exercise. Uh, you know, I often say that, you know, spiritual exercise is a lot like going to the gym. When we go to the gym, we go with the intention of doing violence against ourselves to hurt our muscles and to, you know, to train our bodies. And at first it hurts, but over time we find that we're stronger, we have more stamina, we feel healthier, we look better. And the same is true in, in the spiritual warfare. We really have to recognize the evils that are out there and, and struggle against it. It is a battle. Let's go back to the phones. And uh, Henry's been waiting. He's in Fort Worth. Henry, you are on with Tarek Saab. Yeah, I've got two quick observations to make. Uh, one is the uh, thing the gentleman said about marriage as a, kind of a precursor to maturity. The problem I have with that is that a lot of young people are getting married, they're having children, they don't know how to raise those children, they don't have any links with their family, and they spend all of their time at work instead of focusing on building a family because this is how they're mature. They have a house, Mm -hmm. they have a car, they're raising children, but they're not focusing on living a Christian lifestyle. And it really does need to be intentional uh, with regard to raising a family. Go ahead, Tarek. Yeah, you know, I, I think you have to be careful here because what I'm saying is that 50 years ago, people were getting married at 22 because they were prepared for the responsibility. In fact, they welcomed it. It was part of, of growing up and, and, and the, the process of, you know, changing and maturing is preparing for that level of responsibility, and that requires sacrifice. Now, there are a lot of people, as you mentioned, who get married who aren't prepared for that. They, they aren't ready to, to make the necessary um, changes in their lives to be able to properly balance their family and their children and, and work. And they have to go through that process. What I'm talking about a lot in my book is the internal changes we have to go through to not only prepare ourselves for adulthood, but for all of the things that come with adulthood, be it marriage, responsibility, money, or, or what have you. Sounds like a good uh, premarital manual uh, if you're planning on getting married, too, for young men. Let's go back and uh, speak with David in Dallas. David, thanks for calling. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the, the guest's perspective and so forth. And I, I, it's a personal comment on myself. I can simply say that uh, having a young son and three young daughters, I'm in the midst of raising uh, the next generation. And the key factor that I think is happening, and uh, I, I may speak generally, but I think uh, uh, correctly for everyone, we try to grow our children up too fast today. And sometimes, as I've explained to my son particularly, because of the video um, addiction that I see with other uh, children, boys particularly, is that these are tools. I have to be on a computer every day um, doing my work and then interfacing with people in person, so forth like that. But truly, technology is a great thing, but it's a tool. And unfortunately, the video industry has made it so glamorous that uh, children lose their focus. But I'm not going to say anything that people don't already know, because it's a doorway into a boy, particularly a boy's soul, 
if he does not guard it. And unfortunately, many parents, I'm in my late 40s, and so I've seen the generation from Pac-Man and the Atari Pong to where we are now, and I'm not well outspoken, but I am very much against introducing video games to boys because it's a distraction, much like television was when I was growing up. Let me get Tarek to respond to this. Tarek, do you think that it's uh, like a good uh, idea for parents to just kind of ban the video games from the family, or is that well, naive I, to be able to do that? You know, I think that just depends on the family. I think there there are some kids who you know it's you know not a difficult. Uh, thing for them to, to only play an hour, and there are others that really struggle with it. But I think that the the, uh, the caller really makes a great, great point because, yes, technology is great, and it can be used for a lot of great things, but it can also be used to harm. And I think you can make, you know, the analogy that, you know, technology is like uh, a knife in, in some respects. A knife can be used to operate and to save someone's life, or it can be used to kill and to destroy. And it's a, a, a tool, a valuable tool, but it can be a weapon at the same time. And when we see our, our children growing up and developing, we have to, as parents or future parents, be able to recognize whether or not a child is ready for that responsibility or, or can handle it appropriately, because everyone is different. Tarek. Saab, uh, really appreciate your joining me today. I wish we had another hour because uh, folks are very interested in this subject. But if you are interested, ladies and gentlemen, get the book, Gut Check, Confronting Love, Work, and Manhood in Your 20s. I think it's needed. I've got a couple of sons in my 20s, and uh, there's a lot of helpful information here for young men and for their parents. So, uh, Tarek Saab, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. And if you want to get a little bit more information, visit uh, my website, buygutcheck.com. Buygutcheck.com. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, I noticed uh, sort of a speaking guide that uh, our producer, Andrew Bear wrote for, um, for, I think, a sermon that he gave. And he said the God- godly husband will provide, protect, love, sacrifice, and serve. Those are the things that a godly husband will do. Join us tomorrow. been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian Worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.